here we go. Daniel 9, we're talking about end times. Now, when we're talking about end times, remember, we're making a lot of prophecy stuff, okay? Remember 2012, okay? This is one man's perspective of it, okay? That, you know, they're going to they're gonna just do it. Now, let me share with you some predictions or comments made in history, in, in recent history, about certain things that people, is it going to work, is it not going to work? For instance, Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Science Society, his comment when somebody came and said about x-rays, he said they're going to be proven to be a total hoax. That was his prediction, that it's not something that they should get involved in. Here's some William Orton. When he was approached by Graham Bell trying to sell some of his company inventions, his comment, the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. He hit it wrong, did he not? Here's an individual that uh, was talking about investments, whether they should invest in Ford Motor Company. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is just a fad. Okay, we know that that's not true at all, the way society has gone. New York Times said a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. We had this comment, Margaret Thatcher. Okay, she made this comment, it'll be years, not in my, my time, before a woman will become prime minister. Okay. <laughs> She was the first one, right. Okay, um, here's a publishing executive, J.K. Rawlings, with the uh, uh, series from Harry Potter, made this comment. Children just aren't interested in witches and wizards anymore. And Rawlings went to the bank laughing with all that she's made off that whole design so far. The, there's a lot of different ideas that people have about predictions and prophecy. We're going to hear a bunch of them in the next month. People are going to be making forecasts and prophecy about what's happening. Now, we're in Daniel 9, and we're dealing with a prophecy that's made hundreds of years ago, but it's very relevant, and it's happening today. Last week, I understood and uh, found out only afterwards that I gave you bad notes. And so some of you who were here in the class last week, that you missed some of the stuff because the notes were, and I was going too fast for the fill-in-the-blank, not thinking you had or I was thinking you had blanks. So I'm going to back up just a little bit and remind everybody where we are in Daniel chapter 9. And for those who are just joining us because of cancellation of another class, bear with me while we just remind ourselves. Daniel 9 is the keystone of prophecy when you talk about end times. Now we have so far, if you just joined us for today, we have talked about the tribulation. We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the... Um, Bema seat judgment. And so we've wrapped up the tribulation, but we wanted to pause and then just remind ourselves, what about this Daniel 9 passage? And it, as I said, it's the key to all prophecy. It is written in, in a certain context that is critical. There had been predicted in Second Chronicles, it had been stated that the Jews during that time period of the judges, David, Samuel, uh, Saul, their kingdom, uh, Solomon, I mean, and all those followed, that during that time of period that the Jews did not observe the Sabbath years. In fact, that they had for, for a number of years had been ignoring those Sabbath years. And so it came to a point where God said, there's about 70 of them that you owe me that you haven't taken the break like I told you. So based on that number, God said, you know, after all these years, you've not observed the Sabbath. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get it out of you. I'm going to give this land a period of rest. So what he decided to do was take the Jews out of the land, get them, get them into captivity, remove from the land for 70 years to make up for the 70 different Sabbath years that they had failed to observe. And so what happened around 600 B.C., Jeremiah is ministering. He's saying that the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take us away. Stop resisting. This is the judgment of God because we haven't observed the Sabbath years. And so stop fighting them. Don't involve the Egyptians. Trust in the Lord that if you just yield, it won't be as bad. And um, some of the Jews resisted his information, and so there was an invasion, then another invasion, then another invasion. 
Daniel and his friends were one of the first to, to be taken out of the area in 605. So Daniel goes into Babylon in 605, and as the next few years come by, Jerusalem eventually is destroyed in 586. But the captivity started in 605. And so in that time period, Daniel now is reading the book of Jeremiah. And that's what's happening in Daniel 9. And he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy <coughs> that there's going to be 70 years of captivity. At the time that Daniel is reading, it is around 537 B.C. The captivity has been going on for 68 years his captivity in particular. And so he's reading, and he can do math. He's a smart man. We know how, how intelligent he is. He looks, he sees, God predicted 70 years. We're in that last year of this, this uh, whole captivity. So something's going to change. Something's going to happen here that we've got to wrap this thing up. And so he's praying to the Lord, Lord, what next? If the end of the captivity is coming, then surely that must mean you're bringing in your kingdom. You're going to restore us. You're going to salvage us. And so he's praying and with the thought that the kingdom of God is coming in the next two years. Because they don't have any other prophecy. They're, the next prophecy is Messiah coming, Messiah coming. And so that's what he's looking at. God sends an angel to answer his prayers. And the angel comes and explains what's going to happen next. That's Daniel 9, verse 24. And, the day, and if you look at the passage where it says... In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the angel starts speaking and giving him the information. There are yet 70 weeks determined, 77s or 490 more years are determined upon your people and upon the holy city. So this is a Jewish prophecy. This is not a prophecy about us. This is not a prophecy about America. This is a prophecy about Jerusalem and the people of the, the Jewish people. He says that there's yet 490 years until... These things happen, and he lists six of them. And these six different items that he lists all have to do with the beginning of the, of the kingdom of God upon the earth. It is the, so he's saying there's, there's no kingdom coming right away. There's going to be another 490 years. In a, in once, once we end up this captivity, there's going to be another 490 years at least before the kingdom of God comes, before there's an end of all sins. There's the final sins are removed, uh, bringing in everlasting righteousness, the sealing up or completing of the visions. All of those have to do with kingdom, the anointing of the Holy One, Messiah being present. Then he, the third comment that's made is that 777s seven, or 490 years. Now the reason we say it's years because in context he's talking about 70 years of captivity. Years is the figure. Years is the time period that's being discussed in this entire text. Years of captivity and 77s. He doesn't use a Hebrew word you know, for, the, for days or months or years, but rather what he does is he just says, uses the number, 77s. And if we compare this passage with the book of Revelation, with, with other passages, it's very clear that that last period of time called the tribulation, the very last week that's going to be discussed here in the next couple of minutes, that he gives times for that, 42 months, 1260 days. And so comparing prophecy with prophecy, there's no other way to literally interpret this than what he's talking about is 70 sevens of years, 490 years. The 77s are divided, if we look at the prophecy, look at verse 25 and 26. 
In this prophecy, he divides the 490 into three different sections. He says there's a section of seven weeks or 49 years. Then it's going to be followed by 62 weeks or 434 years. And then there's going to be a final period of seven years, a final week. And so he clarifies we have one, then another, then another. Okay, and so why God has divided it that way, that's up to him. But he makes it clear in this text, there will be seven weeks followed by 62 weeks followed by the final week. Now let's make another observation. The countdown to the 77s, or 490 years, begins with a commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. I remind you, at the time that Daniel is hearing this message, Daniel is talking to an angel, Jerusalem at that moment is not existent. There is nobody living there except for scattered remnants of people. There is no city of Jerusalem. It was destroyed in 586. This is 537. There still isn't a city. Nobody has been allowed to leave captivity of Babylon and to move back to Jerusalem. That hasn't taken place. That's not in, the, that's not in anybody's foreseeable future. They don't even have it on the horizon. Daniel hasn't discussed it. He's not even made any type of proposal that we know of to the kings of Babylon. And so God is saying there's going to be a decree. A number of people are going to go back restore, rebuild Jerusalem because it makes sense, there is no Jerusalem right now. And so there's a commandment that starts it. That will begin the first seven weeks or 49 years, the first phase. And so what we have is the comment that goes on, it says they will be rebuilding in troublesome times. The indication is that when they go back and they are allowed to rebuild, it's not going to be easy. They're going to run into trouble. They're going to run into difficulty as they try to rebuild. Then he says, after that, after the seven weeks, and then followed by the 62 weeks, okay, 49 years followed by 434 years, then what's going to happen, Messiah, it's not stated that he shows up, it's implied. Messiah is going to show up, he will be cut off, okay, but not for himself, and so now he's giving us details that Messiah isn't coming. This is an interesting thought. Okay? He is indicating Messiah is coming before the kingdom comes. Okay? Which, is an, which is one of those veiled predictions of the first coming. So Messiah is going to come. Remember he said that Messiah will be anointed when the, when, when the kingdom comes. And you know, after the four... You know, There's going to be 490 years before the anointed one comes or is anointed. And so the idea is he's coming a second time. Because in this prophecy, as we keep on going through, after 483 years, Messiah will come and he'll be cut off. The word for cut off here in the Hebrew is an idea of a violent death, a murder, a slaughtering. It's like the idea of sacrificing and slaying an animal. So again, the Old Testament is teaching that when the Messiah comes, he, the first time he's going to suffer. Implied in this passage is he comes a second time to rule and to reign, which we understand. We, we understand by hindsight our 2020 vision. His sacrifice is going to be substitutionary, not for something that he has done. And then he says, after Messiah is cut off, then there, the city is going to be destroyed as well as the temple. So Daniel is hearing they're going to rebuild the temple and then years after the temple is rebuilt, Messiah will show up but he's going, to, he's going to be destroyed, cut off and after that the city will be destroyed and the temple will be destroyed a second time. And so he's giving all this information. 
Now we have to pause and say, okay, with that prophecy, was this about as accurate as a weatherman's forecast? Or was this really on target? Okay, this goes back to the integrity of Scripture. And you all in sitting here and saying, oh, I believe it. I have no doubt. Historically, if you want to get into discussion and use this passage, here's what you've got. Historical facts. There was three different decrees to go back and rebuild that we know of in Scripture. The three different decrees are by different rulers that were given at different times for the Jews to go back. Which one of these decrees is the one that the prophecy is referring to? We don't know. Okay, We can't be certain. The question that we have is, do these work? Do any of these decrees work? And last week we kind of wrapped up close to this. If you take the 536 decree and you say seven sevens, 60 plus 62 sevens, 483 years, and you put that and apply those years. If the decree was 536, then we're saying, okay, then sometime after 53 BC, Messiah would come, and the city would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. Is that historically accurate? Did Jesus come after 53 B.C.? Okay, his birth was right around anywhere from 4 to 6 B.C. Why do we know it wasn't 0 B.C.? Uh, 1 B.C., 1 A.D.? Because Herod, the one who tries to kill the Christ child, dies in 4 B.C. And Herod tried to kill children up to what age? up to two years of age. So anywhere from 4 B.C. to 6 B.C. is the birth of Jesus Christ, historically by, by our calendar. So if that's true, then that fits. Okay? Then that fits, and Jesus would have died right around 28 A, uh, A.D. I put B.C. Uh, A.D. Is, is the right one. Okay? Let me take the next one. The next one, 520 was the second decree. If you take that and add it, you're at 37 B.C., same thing works out, okay? That, and again, my AD, it should, the 28 should be AD, okay, that he died. And so that works. The one that's most interesting is if you take the third decree and say, okay, we have a decree and we add the 483 years. That takes us to 25 AD. Did Messiah show up after 25 AD? Well, now you question what event? What event could be used here to fit this prophecy? The beginning of his ministry, like his baptism. Or, okay, the Palm Sunday? Coming in, and what did people think he was? Messiah. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. So it could be that, okay? It could be any one of those things, but it still fits the prophecy, okay? That he dies then after that. And so he's, these all work. It's just how you're going to make them work or where you're, going to, where you're going to... And I don't think biblically we need to say, okay, we've got to pick one and be there and be dogmatic. It doesn't, to me, that doesn't make sense. But if you choose to, so be it. But they all work. Other parts of this prophecy are very accurate. Okay, so the 483 years from a time of a decree to 483 years and then Messiah comes and those things happen. Let's see. Okay, the restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Did that happen that there was a decree that they could and they rebuilt it? Did that happen? The answer is yes. It was built, you have people like Nehemiah, Ezra, they went back and they started rebuilding. And the city was rebuilt over a period of time. Did, uh, and it says that the street shall be built again and the wall, the idea is a marketplace. Did Jerusalem become a commercial center once again? The answer is yes. That happened after Ezra, Nehemiah, and their ministries. 
Did they rebuild the city? Did they rebuild the walls in, with opposition and trouble? Yes or no? Okay, it happened too. Read the book of Nehemiah. That as they tried to build, they were threatened with their lives. In fact, what did Nehemiah put all the way around the, the city walls as they were building? Soldiers, guards in the building project. So we know that that is true. Okay, that those things happen. Did Messiah come and did Messiah get cut off? We know that is true. That Messiah arrived and that Messiah died, not for himself, but for others. So all these prophecies, these tidbits of it, were true. It said, after that the Messiah would be cut off. Then it talks about the people shall come and destroy the city and sanctuary. Did did there come after Messiah, Jesus died, 28 AD, were the Jews cut off? Were they destroyed? 70 AD. Did the temple get destroyed? Absolutely. Did the city get destroyed? Absolutely. So that is a historical fact, that after Christ came. And then this comment, unto the end, desolations are determined. Let's put in more modern terminology. The Jews would, after that, suffer persecutions and atrocities after their city is destroyed. After 70 AD, have the Jews from, from that point through generations, have they suffered persecution and atrocities? Yes, okay. We have it in multiple places of the world that the Jews have been persecuted. And so time has, all these, all these little significant statements are true that these things have happened. And so what we have in this whole, whole prophecy is the idea that everything is fulfilled just like God has said in the first part of the prophecy with the 483 years. Now, if you're thinking properly, you're going, wait a minute. We have been around for a lot more than 490 years since that decree. Since that decree to, to go back and start rebuilding Man, we're, we're way beyond 490 years. You were saying 483 years, then Messiah comes, and then he's cut off. Then Jerusalem is destroyed. We're even another 490 years plus, or times, multiple times, but beyond that. How does this prophecy fit? How is it possible that you can say it's accurate when we are way beyond, in 2018, we are way beyond 490 years for the decree to rebuild the city? Here's why. Okay, In this prophecy, there are innately built-in gaps. God never said in this prophecy there's going to be successive, consecutive, seven, 62, and then the final week, one right after another. He never said that. He says, after this one, after this one, then this one of those different phases. He never, I mean, he never said that they're going to be, when one stops, the next one's going to start. In fact, within this prophecy, there are gaps of time, of calendar time. He is pointing out events, but he never said they're going to happen, boom, 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 right after one another, year upon year, and it's going to be consecutive. In this prophecy, he has said this, after the 62 sevens, the second phase, the anointed shall be cut off, and they shall destroy the city and sanctuary. We know that Jesus was cut off around 28 AD. We know that the city is destroyed in what year? 70 AD. Okay? Innately, in this prophecy, God has put a period of 40 plus years that he never accounted and said, okay, it's day after day. God has just inserted a period of time. 
without explaining it. He just said, this is going to happen sometime after that. This is going to happen. And so in the prophecy, there's never a claim. In fact, we look back and we can tell historically and by events that God did put gaps of time. In fact, let me give you another thought. From the going forth of the commandment unto Jerusalem being uh, built unto the Messiah, okay, if we take those different dates that of, of what happens, okay, of when the decree happened and when they rebuilt until Messiah comes, there could be some gaps of decades, if the 53 B.C. is the date, 37 B.C. is the date of his arrival, or 25 A.D. is the date of his arrival, then he doesn't die until 28. There's another gap of at least three years, if not multiple decades, built into the prophecy. Let's go a little bit further. The city is going to be destroyed. Okay? And then after the sanctuary and city is destroyed, then we're going to have the prince of the people who destroyed the city, Roman, is going to come and confirm a covenant, okay? And then he's going to cause sacrifice to cease. Watch this, okay? When this happens, the city is destroyed, okay? And John is going to fill in some of the gaps in the book of Revelation. But Daniel is writing, and when, when even John is being told... In, uh, in the book of Revelation. There's the cities destroyed in 70 AD, but the implication is that it's going to be rebuilt. Well, in 95 AD, when John's writing Revelation, the city has not yet been rebuilt. And so we already have gaps that are inserted here from the time that the, the Messiah is cut off, the city is rebuilt, and Antichrist comes in and breaks up temple uh, worship once again in the middle of the last week. There has to be a time for rebuilding. There's another gap implied. This isn't the only prophecy. Okay? Don't get, don't get caught up with be thinking Western and American where we think, okay, let's be very literal. It says after this, after this, after this. Like when we tell stories, we give boom, boom, boom. We give things so consequentially. We are so, so focused on you know, when it happened. They aren't concerned. Hebrew Semitic thinking isn't concerned when things happen. They're just concerned that they happened. They're not as time-oriented as we are. So you have in prophecy, other prophecies, this idea of gaps is not unusual. Here, I'll give you an illustration. We talk about this verse all the time at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, see, Bob, I, I, I know a little of the handles Messiah for all the hassle that you get. That I get. Okay, look at this prophecy, okay? He's giving us in this prophecy, in these two phrases, a huge gap of time. Do you see it? Okay, the birth of Jesus Christ. When is the government to be upon his shoulders? That's his kingdom. That's his kingdom. That's yet at least seven years future to us. Within this Christmas passage, there's predictions that we're talking at least 2,000 plus years of a gap within one single phrase. This isn't unusual. Let me give you another one. It says, Jerusalem, your king shall come unto you lowly riding on a colt of a donkey. What are we talking about? Okay, we're talking about Palm Sunday, right? Then it goes on and says, his dominion shall be from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. What are we talking about in that phrase? His kingdom. Okay? When's his kingdom? At least seven years from us right now. So again, in this same verse, in the same context, God has put a gap of 2,000 plus years. Here, I'll give you one where Jesus is preaching. 
Jesus quotes this. Do you remember when he quotes this passage? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In fact, he says, you see fulfilled this day. Do you remember when he's preaching this Isaiah message? It's in his hometown of... Not, of where? Nazareth, you're right. Yeah, yeah, not Bethlehem. But he's preaching in, I think it's Luke 4, he's preaching it. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says, today you see this prophecy fulfilled. He's referring to what part of this prophecy? Preaching to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, okay? And, you know, deliverance to the captives, because he's just done miracles. But, he, but what, what is the response of the Nazarenes when he's done with this message? Anybody remember the setting? They get really ticked with him because he's quoting Isaiah 61, which is a, it's a messianic claim. He is claiming, I am the Messiah, I am God. And they rise up and at the invitation, what do they do? They come forward, but they don't kneel down and pray. Anybody remember what they do with Jesus? They take him out to a hilltop and they're going to throw him overboard. Okay, they're going to kill him. That's their invitation response. Okay, this verse now, watch this. Jesus is preaching it, and it's right around that 25 AD, let's put that 26 AD, Jesus is preaching it. The rest of the verse goes on to say this, and to proclaim the day of judgment. Okay, when is the day of judgment? When is it that Jesus, you know, when Jesus said, this day you see the prophecy fulfilled, when is Jesus going to do the day of judgment? Well, the first time is going to be what we're going to call the sheep-goat judgment that Matthew 25 talks about. That's when Jesus Christ comes back from heaven down to earth, and then he starts setting up his kingdom. Before he, he sets up the kingdom, he judges who's going to be able to live and go into the kingdom. And so it's a sheep-goat judgment. So he is saying, okay, this one verse that talks about the Messiah coming, in this one verse there's huge gaps of his ministry, timing. One is going to be when he comes his first time, and one is going to be coming when he comes the second time. And so again, within the same verse that Jesus declares it is being fulfilled, there's 2,000 years within this one verse. So to go to Daniel 9, verses 24, 25, 26, 27, and to say, well, it can't be right because there's gaps of time. There are gaps of time in prophecy. That is a realistic statement. That is a biblically consistent statement. And so here he's saying, okay, there's, there's going to be the seven weeks followed by the 62 weeks. Then Messiah is going to be cut off. Then sometime after that, Messiah, the city is going to be destroyed. Then sometime after that, and he never gives us a time period. Sometime after that, there's going to be the final week. When in the final week, there's going to be starting, and it's going to start when the prince of the world signs a treaty with Israel. Folk, think this through. There has to be a huge gap of time, or some gap of time, because when 70 AD occurs, there's no Jerusalem. The next phrase talks about a restored Jerusalem. There had to be time to restore, rebuild, and become a nation again. And so... He's inserted periods and gaps of time. And let me remind you, this, you say, but that seems 2,000 years is such a huge gap. It's not a problem. If you're consistent in your theology, who is the focus of the 77s? They are determined upon who? 
the Jewish people, and the holy city. What did Jesus do after he ascended, or around the time he ascended, where did he tell his disciples to focus their ministry? On Jerusalem and the Jewish people? I know it's a rough morning. It's dark out. It looks like rain. Where did Jesus, he had a shift here. Early in his three-year ministry, he told them, only go to the Jews and preach to the Jews. After he is cut off, after he rises again, where does he tell them to go and preach? To the whole world. There's a shift. The shift in ministry is no longer upon the Jewish people. They are not working to restore the Jewish state. What are they supposed to build? What are they supposed to plant? What are they supposed to start? Not temple worship, but churches. Okay? And it is the church age where the gospel goes to everyone. And even Paul writes, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile during this time period. Okay? And so we're living in that time period that's in a gap, but it's not a time period that focuses only on the Jews. Should we forget the Jews? No. Should they be a reached people that were messianically, missions-oriented? Yes. However, keep in mind, when Jews get saved, they become a part of the body of Christ. We're living in a church age. When does the church age stop? When he takes the church out of this world, okay, and takes them to heaven. Then he reverts back to a period of time that is focused on dealing with the Jewish people. That's the book of Revelation that we've been studying. The book of Revelation in chapter 12. Who does he focus on in chapter 12? Satan's going after the woman who bore the man-child, the Jewish nation. They have, if they run into the wilderness, God will protect them. And so that last seven years is a reversion back to a Jewish time period where there's going to be worship again in the temple. The temple will be rebuilt. It'll become the focal point. And so... This 490 years is no problem when we understand theologically that there are gaps of time and <coughs> the focus of this time period right now is church age. That we're living in a time period that isn't just Jews only, it's the whole world. But he's going to revert back to the Jews. Oh, by the way, when he re reverts back in the 70th week to Jewish people, who are your major witnesses? Remember who, who's the major witnesses in the seven, last seven years that we talked about? A hundred and who are who? Jews from 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Who else is major witnesses? There's two of them. The two prophets who are Jewish preaching from what area? What confines? The temple area. Okay, and so a lot of it is right, right away, it's right back to a Jewish concept, uh, though he doesn't ignore the world. But by the way, just to clarify, in that, in that period in the Old Testament under the law, did God ignore the world? Did he want the Jews to be witnesses to the whole world? Yeah, by the way, remember the passage we often quote, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? That comes out of one of the minor prophets, it's not, a, it's not a New Testament verse only. It is an Old Testament verse that they were supposed to be sharing the gospel with everyone. In fact, did God, was God concerned about Nineveh? That he would send a prophet to the Gentiles of Nineveh? Absolutely. And so as we'll see this morning, God, God ministered. 
um, outside the Jewish peoples to try to bring the people to salvation, but the Jews were to be the light. They were to be the witness. So we're in that now, that last seven weeks. Sometime after Messiah is cut off, he talks in this text about the last seven weeks or seven years. Okay, the 70th week. And so in this, let's just highlight what we have. This is a period of seven years. It's the 70th seven, the final week. That last seven years begins with a treaty between Israel and a major world ruler. A treaty that talks about the Jews being, being working with some world leader, that's a prince that shall come, that that prince is going to help them out. We know that number three, this major world ruler, according to this passage, if we look at it, okay, where we pick up where it says, okay, in verse 27, it talks about after the 62, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was the Romans who did that. The end thereof shall be with a flood, the end of the war, desolations. They're going to have troubles, troubles, troubles. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for a week. It's going back to the prince that shall come. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblations to cease for the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation or to the end. And that, deter- that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Sounds rather uh, convoluted, but here's what you got. The world ruler, the prince that shall come, is described in this passage as a descendant of the Roman Empire. How do we know that? History. The people who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., in the previous verse referred to uh, the people of the prince that shall come. It was the Romans that attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed it. So they're saying somebody out of the modern Roman Empire or the region where the Roman Empire was, they're going to come to power. They're going to set up a treaty. Now in Daniel 7, Daniel 11, he qualifies, he talks about the prince that shall come. He's going to, and we looked at this already, and we looked at some of the descriptions of Antichrist, that prince that shall come that's referred to in Daniel 9. He's one of great speech. He's one that people will say who can stand against him. He's one that's a good appearance. He's one that will usurp three of the other kings in a ten-nation confederacy, become the predominant leader. That's who we're talking about, the Antichrist. Okay, we know he's from the Roman Empire. He's a very wicked man. We know he's an extremely wicked man for a couple of reasons out of this text. We know that he doesn't keep his word. He breaks his treaty. We know that he performs abominations, some type of abomination. He's going to, he's going to disrupt the worship service that's been restored. He's going to cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease, the worship that's been, that's been restarted. He is called the desolator in this passage. That is the one who destroys, the one who brings death, the one who brings misery to so many people, a very wicked individual who's going to rise to power, make a covenant. Now we know, because we've studied it already, he is called in the New Testament Antichrist. He is called the man of sin. He is called you know, the, the abomination. We know this as well about him. Let's go a little bit further. Okay? In the, this is going to happen in the middle of the week, the middle of the seven years, the ruler will break the treaty after three and a half years. My numbering in years on the screen may be a little bit different. One might be three, might be four, I'm not sure. The forces of the, the, uh, of the, he forces the Jews to cease their sacrifice. Implied in this, implied is something about the temple. What's implied in this prophecy? Okay. The temple has to come back to, to uh, existence. 
and there have to be a restoration of all the Jewish sacrifices. That's implied in this text. When that happens, we don't know. But it has to happen before the middle of the tribulation period. Okay? Because he stops it. He performs what is called the abomination of desolation, which Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. Go to the hilltops. If you're on top of your house, don't bother packing. Get out of there. If you're in your field, don't run back to your house. Get out of there to the Jewish people. And so he's going to somehow desecrate the temple. Now, 2 Thessalonians, which we've looked at, in 2 Thessalonians, what does he do to desecrate the temple? He goes into the Holy of Holies and he, he sits on basically the Ark of the Covenant and declares that he is God. Okay. So that's the desecration that we learn from other passages. Let's go a little bit further. In the second half of the tribulation, according to this prophecy, in the second half, after he does the abomination of desolation, the Jews are going to have a terrible, terrible time, okay? Uh, that they're going to suffer. There's going to be extreme persecution against them. That fits Revelation 12, when it says Satan is cast out of heaven at the middle of the tribulation. He's cast out of heaven. He comes down to the earth, and he goes after the woman who bore the man who is going to rule with a rod of iron. And he comes after the Jewish people, and she runs into the wilderness, and God sends a flood that stops the serpent, the great beast, Satan, from destroying that woman, Israel. And so we have all these passages starting to plug in, fit together, but they all start with Daniel chapter 9. Number six, the end, at the end of the seven years, the desolator, that is Antichrist, is judged or removed from power. Okay, there's going to be desolation upon the desolator, it says. The idea that there's a decreed end poured out on the desolator. God's going to judge him. God's going to take him out. Let's do number seven. At the end of this time, Messiah and his kingdom will then come to earth. After the desolator, after, after uh, Antichrist is destroyed, then Messiah sets up his kingdom. Now we know from Daniel chapter 12 that we'll see next week, the week after. Daniel 12 says there's a period of several weeks between the time of God's coming to this earth and the beginning of the kingdom. In that several weeks period, and he gives the number of days, in that several week period, I think it's 75 days if I'm not mistaken, from Daniel 12, that there's going to be something happening. It's probably going to be the judgment of Antichrist, the judgment of the false prophet, the sheep goat judgment, the renovation of planet earth to get it back to where it was. It could be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. It could be their judgment for rewards or those who rejected be damned the sheep go judgment. And so you have that happening, that Messiah is going to come, and then he's going to have the anointed one will arrive, the ceasing of all sacrifices. They don't need him anymore. He's there. There's going to be the ceasing of sin, all those things he talked about early in the passage. So how does this prophecy fit with others? Let's just remind ourselves, okay? Jesus predicted you're going to hear of wars and rumors of war. These are only the beginning of sorrows. He's referring to the first half of the tribulation period. That you're going to all of a sudden see that the world is in chaos in that last seven years. It's a terrible time for the rest of the world. Then, after the three and a half years, after the beginning... When we go into the second half, they're going to deliver you. You Jews are going to be persecuted like never before. They're going to kill you. It fits that you're going to see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. When you see it, get out of there. 
because now the persecution is coming after you. He says that those on the rooftop, as I mentioned, get out of there. Don't go back to your house. Those, he says, then shall be the great tribulation, the second half, such as though not since the beginning of the world, and except those days would be shortened, nobody's going to survive the second half of the tribulation period. It, it fits as well when you start comparing the book of Revelation. I'll remind you that in the book of Revelation, just two weeks ago we talked about in Revelation 11, he says that the, court, the temple will be overrun, taken over for 42 months. That's the second half of the, of the tribulation. When Antichrist will go in, take over, he'll rule. He seems like he's got in control of even the restored temple of God. And talks and gives a time period, 42 months or three and a half years. He talks about the two prophets that they're going to be preaching. They're going to be giving a message during this time period. And we pointed out when we looked at that passage that they're going to preach for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years by, by um, prophecy years of 360 days in a year. We know as well that it says in Revelation 12, Satan, when he's cast out of heaven, will go after the Jews for 1,260 days. We looked at this about four weeks ago. That's three and a half years. That second half of the tribulation is the great tribulation for the Jewish people. And all these times that he gives specific, specific dating, he calls it a time, two times, two years, a year, two years, and a half a year, half a time. Three and a half years. All these passages fit together. There's no contradiction in any of them. So you come and say, okay, we've, we see all that. What was he trying to tell Daniel besides giving him information? What lesson were, could Daniel tell? Now think this. Daniel writes this down. He has hundreds, thousands of Jewish citizens that he is trying to protect that he is trying to lead, that he could help them out by writing down the revelation that he gets and then spreading it so that these Jews, the Jews that go back, they take Daniel's book with them that he records, the lion's den, how God protected when he prayed. They take these stories back to them when they rebuild Jerusalem. And in the troublesome times, what lessons could they learn from this text, Daniel 9, that might be encouraging to them? I think the overriding lesson is this. The overriding lesson for Daniel, for the people that he's ministering to, for us who read it today, got to trust the Lord 100%. Got to trust in the Lord. I'll give you several reasons why quickly from this text. Number one, it's very clear God controls all the events. God controls all these events in the future. The decree to return, he controlled it. Rebuilding of the city, he controlled it, brought to pass. Them facing trouble sometimes, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Predicted that generations ahead of time. Predicted that the Messiah would come. Predicted that Messiah <coughs> would live a life of innocency. That there would be a period of time between his arrival and his death. That his Messiah would suffer. That he would die. The temple would be destroyed again. And the temple would be rebuilt. God is aware of all situations. He knows the future. Yours. Mine. <coughs> so we can trust him. Because in this text, God loves us. God loves us so much that Messiah is coming. Not once, but twice. Because of his care for us. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He cares for you. Let me give you a third reason. Because God responds quickly to those who trust in him. Daniel prays and says, God, I don't understand. I don't understand your word. I need some direction. I need some guidance. God responds to those who come to him in faith. And God sent to him somebody to help explain what was going on. Just like God can send to you somebody to help explain scriptures to you to get direction, trust the Lord. Let me give you number four. Okay? Because in God's plans, think this through. 
in God's plans of caring for us and providing for us, he might include some difficult moments. He doesn't say that, you know, that every single day is going to be peaceful, that every road is going to be paved with a street of gold and no problems. You know that's not true. When he's giving prophecy to the Jews, he tells them, when you go back and rebuild, you're going to face trouble sometimes. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be rejected. There's going to be trouble sometimes. I, I have a plan for you. It's going to include that there's going to be an Antichrist who's going to come after you. You see, if we go through and look at the prophecies of the 70 weeks, in some of those gaps of times, the ultimate good is to get to the kingdom of God. That's, that's God's plan for them, for us. We also know that you know, Daniel was anxious for the kingdom. In fact, when Jesus resurrects, his disciples say, is now the kingdom? It's, we wake up on a daily basis and say, please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want it to be done. Okay? But before the kingdom, there's going to be difficult moments, Daniel reports to his fellow Jews. There's going to be a time when they rebuild in trouble sometimes. Your Messiah is going to be cut off. Jerusalem will be destroyed again. There's going to be the, like a flood. It's going to be difficulties for you. And then there's going to be desolations upon you. Then during that time period of the final week, man, it gets worse. It's the worst time, especially the second half in all of history. But trust the Lord. Why? Because even in the good plans that God has for us ultimately, there could be paved with some difficulties. We need to trust the Lord. Number five, God is faithful. God is faithful to his people to whom he's made any promise. He made the promise to the Jews. He's going to be faithful to them. He told them, you're going to be chastened if you don't obey my word. They were 70 years of captivity because just like he said, they're promised they're going to be allowed to go back into the land. They were. They restore the city. By the time Jesus comes, it's a major Mideastern city. But they were destroyed a second time, just as God said it would happen. Okay? God's going to meet all of these promises and the kingdom promises eventually. Number six, God will be victorious in the end. That in the, according to this passage, there's the overspreading of abominations. He, you know, God's going to make him desolate until the consummation and that are determined shall be poured upon the desolate or desolator. Some of that's confusing in our King James. Let me give you a different translation that helps out. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. That's Antichrist. Until the decreed end is poured out upon him. God's going to overcome this one who seems invincible. God predicts he's going to overcome him. And then there's another reason why to trust. Because those who don't trust are going to be living to regret it. That is the Jews of the past. That is the Jews in Daniel's future. That is those who attack the Jews. That is the Antichrist. We have all these individuals who are going to be judged by God if they don't trust. You and I need to trust. Trust the Lord 100%. With that in mind, that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about this morning, about trusting the Lord and how he rewards. Let's get ready for worship.